Okay. Let's fix this. Alright, how's everyone doing? Doing alright. Doing alright, okay. Um, I'm, I'm a more formal question. How's the volume here? Is it breaking or people can hear me? It's good. Good? Okay. Good. It's really doing something weird, but if it sounds good, that is good for me. All right. Um, excellent. So let's start. Uh, any questions on the assignment that's due tonight? Yes, I had two, actually. Okay. Um, one, you literally just answered by saying it's due tonight. Oh, okay. Uh, so <laughs> I assume it's not due by class time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second one, uh, for the director's notes, mm -hmm. when it comes to describing spines for each of the characters, do mm -hmm. we have to do one for every single character or just the characters that we feel are important? You have to do one for each character. I mean, if it's a spear carrier, like, like a guy who comes on and says one line, you, you don't have to do that. But for every character who's sort of named. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Thank you. No problem. Okay, anything else? Yeah, I'm just making sure. I uh, sent it to you as a PDF. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. I'll put, uh, I'm going to put my com I'll put my comments on a another page then. Or I might open it as a um I might open it as a Google Doc to put the comments in. Uh so Okay. I'll get comments to you. It, in other words, it's fine. The PDF is not okay. going to matter one way or another. You're welcome. Okay, good. Um, so that is a lot, a lot fewer questions with this assignment than the last one. So that's, that's improvement then, <laughs> hopefully on my part anyway. Um, so yeah, if anybody has any other questions or, or needs help or something throughout the day, I'll, I'll try and keep, uh, keep this email open. Um, but anyway, so let's get into the, the Prince of Homburg. Uh, what did you guys, let me just turn this thing off um what did you guys let's start with opening thoughts what did you guys think of this play general thoughts Very interesting mm -hmm. okay <laughs> That's... um so just a basic question this mm -hmm. was before germany was unified correct yes yeah you're looking okay. at at a unified prussia kind of but yeah you're not that's a really good question, actually. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Because there is... Um, well, I'll ask you. Why did you, why did you ask that? Um, just because kind of the way that the prince was treated mm -hmm. uh, differs quite a bit from the way, I think, p uh, royalty in other like larger, more unified countries were treated. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that has to do with you know, his character and the plot. Mm -hmm. But it just was a little interesting thing that I picked up on. Yeah, the the kind of the, the ranking of people is a little odd. Um, there's a number of princes, and there are uh, the the real person in charge is the elector, the elector of Brandenburg. Um, so the the prince himself is um, the the title of prince is not as uh, maybe esteemed as, let's say, the, the Prince of England or something like that. Um, this is actually true of England in 
in the time of um, well, the end of the monarchy. By the time this play is going on, you um, by the time this play is performed, it's this play is performed eighteen twenty one. Does the French monarch is the French monarchy back by then? I think they might be, but anyway, before before the French monarchy was restored, you actually had a ton of people titled prince um, and princess in the era of France and in the in the nation of France as well. And that's why, um, like Marie Antoinette, for example, was the archduchess as well as a princess. And the archduchess is actually a a better title because it's rarer. Um, and so that's kind of going on here. There's a lot of princes, but the elector is the real, uh, the, the real, uh, the real king of them all, so to speak. Um, you know, but you're you're also dealing with a kind of different political structure. So there we go. Okay, and so the uh, but the 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 kind of national fervor or the nationalist fervor is important and i think the um the idea of the nation or the country is maybe different um than what we've encountered before and probably has a lot more links with how we think of nations and countries today and so we're going to get into that a little bit um any other responses to the prince of hamburg no that's okay as a character was very interesting um, just in the fact that he seemed a lot more how do I put this not whimsical but like <laughs> not really as connected with the world going on around him yeah. as one would expect a prince to be yeah um, mm -hmm. which I thought was fun yeah he he not connected is the uh, oh god a polite way of saying it right he's he is like in his own head and actually there's kind of evidence in in this particular production that you know the whole thing is in his head right we we have that kind of bit of evidence at the end and there's one bit of evidence in the the scene where they're assigning orders they're assigning out uh, uh battle orders where he sort of, the, the prince himself starts the scene up again after it's stopped. Um, and so there, there's some evidence that it, that the uh, angle the director is taking in this production um, is that actually everything is in the prince's head. Um, but we're going to ask that, because mm -hmm. at the end it says, like, he asks, you know, he asks, is this a dream? And they tell him basically yes. Yeah, it's sort of um, it's sort of all. Yeah. Is it a dream? Isn't it? I, I would caution against saying like it didn't happen because it's a dream. Right. I, I would think instead or or lead you to think about this idea of um, of the subjective being more important than the objective and therefore it's all in his head or it's all his kind of dream doesn't necessarily invalidate it as true but it's a different type of true or a different type of truth that makes sense okay. yeah so that that's kind of my reading of what this director is doing um, because yeah we do begin and end 
in his sleep. And of course, the end is is right. There's three of him who are kind of standing there looking at each other. Um, so, and it also ends in like his absolute fantasy, right? He's uh, he's not only the victor of uh, uh, Berlin, I think is how you say it, the, the Battle of Berlin. Um, but he's also the person who's able to make a noble sacrifice. But even in making a noble sacrifice, he doesn't actually have to make the sacrifice. He could just, he, he can commit to it, but he's saved. Um, and he's not only is he saved, he gets to marry the princess. Uh, so, and, and he gets to marry the princess while being carried by the entire court while wearing a laurel wreath into the night. You know, it's like, it is, it, it's his perfect fantasy writ large and come true. Um, and I think that that kind of, um, that romantic spirit is what makes this play endure. And it also, it, it makes this play endure in the sense that we, you know, people continue to stage this play, um, but it also makes it of its time as well, right? It, it, it is part of this romantic, which we talked about ooh, two weeks ago, I think, two or three weeks ago, part of this, this romantic, um, this romantic sensibility that's growing at this time. And so what I want to do today after kind of these opening comments, talk a little bit about that sensibility and then um, get, jump back into the play. Any other comments about, uh, any other likes, dislikes about the play? This is kind of a random comment, but the fact that you connected this to like the romantic era, mm -hmm. um, just the fact that it kind of starts and ends with a laurel wreath, <laughs> um, which is like a really heavy, um, like, I think either Roman or Greek symbol about mm -hmm. like victory and stuff. I feel like that really ties everything into the romantic ideology. Um, so it's interesting that you said that. Oh yeah, the laurel reef is definitely, and it's also the laurel reef is for victory. Um, but it's also it could be the victory of the warrior or the victory of the poet, right? And so we have Homburg, who isn't he isn't a poet official, but he is poetic, right? In, in the way he speaks, the way he looks at things. Um, you know, the way he is in the world where he's sort of living poetry to be, <laughs> to be like maybe a little, a little too flowery. But, um, and so the laurel reef that he, he covets is, is that thing that kind of unifies victory, both for the, you know, the, the poet, the victor of the kind of the dramatic contest, but also the victor of, you know, battle of war. Uh, and it's no mistake that if, um, I'll ask you guys, does anybody know who Lord Byron is? Just to draw a parallel from Homburg to, to one of these romantic figures. So, so by, uh, he's a, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a poet, was a poet. Yep, yep, you're right, Sonia. So, so Lord Byron, he's super dead, uh, but he was a poet in the early part of the 19th century and he was part of that romantic movement. Um, Actually, interesting enough, he turned away from romanticism and wrote kind of um, like very early 18th century style poems. Uh, his poem, Don, Don Juan, it looks like Don Juan, but it's actually pronounced Juan because he didn't know Spanish, uh, is very much in the spirit of like Alexander Pope. But his poetry before then is very much romantic, uh, uh, 
uh, centering emotion over the top. Um, Lord Byron died traveling to Greece in order to fight for Greek independence because he he saw himself he kind of lived his poetry right he you know um romanced lots of women um some of whom might have been his sister he wrote lots of poetry he lived large he had a, a big reputation um and he also saw kind of fighting for independence you know war going into battle um, as part of this romantic thing and so the the idea of the the warrior poet is something that's going on in this romantic this romantic time at this period um, you know not, not everybody not everybody feels this way obviously um, but this ends up feeding into this kind of uh, idea of nationalism which comes and begins in the, the Romantic Age. So, I you know when I when I watch this, I think Humberg is kind of like um, a, a somewhat dimmer version of Lord Byron. He's like he's not quite quite with it all the time. I, you know I don't imagine Lord Byron like that. But I think the the uh, the the laurel reef becomes a great symbol for Hamburg. He wants, he has this fantasy of being the poet warrior. Um, good. So, uh, any other, any other comments on, on this play? Since we're going with Byron, would the prince be considered like a Byronic hero, or is that too far of a stretch? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, 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 um, I'm not expert enough on Byron or the Romantics to, to say one way or another, but from what I know of Byron, from what I've read of him, uh, that seems appropriate. Um, you know, Byron is is also kind of known for cultivating a bad reputation he's you know he, byron is like the prince of hamburg plus tommy lee from motley crew right he wants to be he wants to be a bad boy he wants to be known that way um you know hamburg isn't hamburg doesn't seem particularly interested in his reputation he seems just sort of i, I mean he he is in the sense that he wants to be celebrated right um but he's not he's not interested in i think um uh, being like the bad boy of Brandenburg, that that's obviously not um, part of his concern, you know. And he actually, he actually quite the opposite. He wants to be the loyal countryman, you know. He wants to be the loyal, uh, the, the the person loyal and true to his elector. So I think that might be that might be a difference, although I think that would require. Uh, me looking into um, the you know the Byronic hero more. I'm not entirely sure uh, how Byron saw himself vis-a-vis -vis his own country, England. I I think later in life he he saw kind of English the the tradition of English poetry as being something more appealing than he did earlier in life. But I honestly I'm not entirely sure. Okay, so any other questions? Just shout them out. Um, 
I'm going to, I had a little trouble with internet connection earlier when I shared some, some kind of notes, the, the slides with, with the, uh, the earlier class, like you could see in the chat, you're breaking up, um, was, was a big problem. So, um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of, I'll post the slides. Honestly, there's a few photographs. They're not, uh, or a few portraits rather. They're not tremendously interesting. Um, but I'm going to just kind of talk about them and then you guys can, can interrupt me as I do. So just cause whatever the, the internet problem is, is I, you know, I don't want it to, to start up again. Um, so looking at German attitudes towards romanticism and kind of the rise of, um, of the counter enlightenment, uh, the, the counter enlightenment probably wasn't known in its day as the counter enlightenment in the same way the enlightenment was known um, in both Germany and England as, and, and in France as the enlightenment, right? The, the, there's actually words in German, in French and England, uh, for this movement in which we're interested in, um, not just rationale, but sort of national, uh, natural rights, uh, and, and individual human capacity and, um, you know, things like economic concern, Right. It's not just about the, the glory of the ruler, but there's something called political economy in which we have to marshal and balance resources, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there's all that. And there's that. And then there, there comes towards the end of the 18th century um, responses to that from different different people, people in um, in France in England and in Germany. And so in the German speaking areas anyway, there is no, there's still no Germany. Not until the 1870s do we have Germany. It's just the German states and Prussia. Um, and so you have, as we talked about two weeks ago, I think the, uh, Frederick the second or Frederick the great, he's in charge of Prussia towards the end of, of the 18th century. Um, he is borrowing from a lot of, he, he's borrowing from a lot of French philosophers. He's having them come to court. He's having people like Rousseau and Voltaire visit and, and discuss. And um, he's developing a larger, more bureaucratic state. And so a lot of people in Prussia uh, become concerned that Frederick is becoming more authoritative and that his authoritativeness, uh, authoritarianism, um, if you want to see it that way, or, or potential authoritarianism, is coming from over France, coming from the French Enlightenment. And so there becomes an active concern that these philosophes are, um, are creating um, a, a kind of universal rule that actually might be quite damaging for the people. And um, furthermore, it's also a French influence on German people. And while Germany isn't a nation, we begin to see people and really thinkers and writers um, more than like the average citizen. Uh, people are always speaking for the average citizen because the average citizen until like the 20th century can't really speak. But we're given the impression from people who did write that... Um, that people who spoke German were beginning to see themselves as a people, as a single people. And that the idea of a state was coming not from the rulers as it had for, for centuries, for millennium, 
for millennia, but it was coming from the bottom up. It was coming from a kind of linguistic community. And this linguistic community, this German language community, was seeing the influence of the French as uh, potentially damaging, largely negative. Meanwhile, in France, we, of course, have a revolution in the storming of the Bastille in 1789, the, the revolution proper in 1792. And the I know we talked about this before, but um, the kind of panic the French Revolution inspired in, in other nations, uh, it can't be... Um, it can't be exaggerated, or it's hard to exaggerate. You had a network of spies operating in England uh, because people were so scared of the French Revolution crossing the Channel. Um, so you have people like William Wordsworth writing about, uh, or he wasn't writing about, but there was a spy that was trailing him that was writing about him and uh, uh, Coleridge kind of meeting together to write lyrical ballads. And you have you have somebody who's actually assigned to spy on him because Wordsworth had warm words for the French Revolution. Um, and this made people you know, nervous in Germany as well. This idea was that the revolution was going to spread like wildfire across Europe. Um, and for a lot of Enlightenment thinkers who end up kind of jumping the, jumping the gulf and, and becoming romantics, a lot of Enlightenment thinkers really embraced the French Revolution. They saw it as, you know, the toppling of tradition for a new rational way of doing things. And in fact, French revolutionaries pulled out religious icons from churches and stuck statues to reason in the churches so you could go worship reason or something, you know. So, th so there was a, a kind of intellectual uh, heart of the French Revolution which people, including our, uh, including Thomas Jefferson, really had a lot of affection for. I think Thomas Jefferson's famous quote, I'm, I'm going to mangle it, but it was something like, um, it, is, it is better that everyone in the world should die than the French Revolution should fail. Um, in terms of things presidents said that they had to take back, that is at the top of the list, I think. He, he definitely pulled that back. Because what ends up happening is the terror occurs, and all of those people who started this French Revolution, they get executed. Um, and what you end up getting is a tremendous amount of executions, political instability, and who comes along and takes over in um, the in 1797 is Napoleon. Napoleon takes over the army. He's very successful overseas in places like Egypt. And then eventually he becomes emperor of France in 1804, putting an end to the internal um, instability in the country. And Napoleon actually, when he's going to be crowned um, by the, uh, I want to say the Bishop of Paris, I don't remember who does the crowning for France, but when he's about to be crowned, he takes the crown from the person who's going to put it on his head and he puts it on his own head. So Napoleon kind of, instead of... Um, saying I'm the next person in line, right? That the the tradition of uh, French monarchs, it has come to me. Instead, Napoleon is crowning himself. And it's this kind of declaration of, um, of the radical individual uh, striving for, for success, right? No longer trapped by tradition, but kind of conquering the tradition. And he was really loved by a lot of these radicals initially also. 
if anybody knows Beethoven's Third Symphony, uh, it's known as the Eroica. Uh, initially, it was devoted to Bonaparte. It was devoted to Napoleon. Um, but once Napoleon starts invading German-speaking areas, like areas that Beethoven lives in, um, Beethoven uh, crosses out Napoleon's name and just calls it the Eroica. So a lot of kind of like romantic era writers and, and Beethoven, when it comes to uh, concert music, Beethoven is sort of considered the first romantic. He's like the close of the classical era and the beginning of the romantic era, but whatever. A lot of writers, artists, musicians, etc., um, saw Napoleon initially as a, as a great figure, um, you know, and and so that's kind of the background, right? We have this sort of growing nationalism. We have political instability. We have suddenly a, um, we have an idea that the Enlightenment has led to the French Revolution. And initially, while that's celebrated, now there is reason to be suspicious of the Enlightenment. Because if the Enlightenment causes the bloodbath that is the French Revolution, maybe we should think about how great this Enlightenment thing is. So that's the background. And so then we get a little bit more into German German writing. Um, the main movement during this time is known as Sturmundrag, which is like storm and stress. And that is from a late 1770s, 1777, I think, play by one Frederick M. Klinger called Sturmundrag. Um, and this is a play about a group of French people who travel to America, and one of the French Frenchmen is holding hostage two other people, and they go to America to participate in the American Revolution, um, even though in America they meet no Americans, and um, and chaos kind of ensues from there. Um, this place, well, uh, I, I don't know how many people really <laughs> stage or celebrate this play anymore, this play became very important in its day because it dealt with kind of extreme emotion and passion and people rending clothes and all this type of thing and and looking towards higher ideals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, that became kind of very important, a very important part of um, kind of this German artistic movement. And uh, one of those one of those artists and philosophers, Johann George Hamann, um, followed in in the wake of Sturmundrang, and he also started to produce plays like that. Uh, he was also interested, you know, not only in kind of the the emotion and the um, you know and the the, the nobility, but uh, Hamann was very much a uh, a reader and commenter on Immanuel Kant, uh, a, a German language philosopher. You could argue he is the most important philosopher since Aristotle, who um, had been building in the late 18th century a philosophical system. Um, and one of his more famous books is uh, What is the Enlightenment? which is a book that actually does critique the Enlightenment, is critical of the Enlightenment. And, um, and Kant's philosophy uh, became known for what was, known, what was called the Copernican Revolution. I'm, I'm throwing a lot of information at you. I'll, I'll, try and, I'll, I'll try and summarize it again to make it a little more sensible. Um, 
So Copernicus, so, oh boy, we, we have a lot of names flying in the air. So Copernicus, he, he changed the model of the solar system, sun-centered, not earth-centered, right? Initially it was, it was earth-centered, Copernicus says, no, 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 sun in the middle. That, that's the revolution. Kant does something similar. He says, um, up to this point, we have been looking at the world and saying we have to say what the truth is by the world outside of us, right? We look around the world, the, work, the world has a collection of facts um, in it. We have to explore those facts and use both empiricism and rationality to see what the truth is. Kant says, you're ignoring the mind, you're ignoring the subject. And in fact, instead of putting objects and objectivity at the center of philosophy, we should put the subject at the center of philosophy. And the the subject, the the human, is actually putting his or her mind onto the world and structuring things by the needs of that mind. Kant called these the categories. And some examples would be time and space. Kant would say time and space are... Um, are ways in which the the subject orders the the world around him or her and so what you begin to see is a a radical turn towards the subject as the center of discussion and so now we have Haman Haman who is poet playwright also a philosopher he's reading Kant and he's really into Kant and he's also occasionally critical of Kant um, and he's also loving the Storm and Drang movement so what you now you have is idealism, excessive emotion, and you combine that with a, uh, a radical turn towards subjectivity, towards that individual, to what the individual wants, sees, experiences as being as valid, if not more valid, than the objective world. And so you could see these kind of elements, and, and hopefully you could see how these philosophical tendencies and aesthetic tendencies are feeding into the Prince of Homburg, right? He is, um, he's a character who is, um, who is very much endowed to Storm and Drang. He, he's uh, very passionate, you know, he's so passionate, so passionate, he wants victory so badly that he can't even sleep. He, he dreams about laurel reefs and then makes them in his sleep right that's how that's how absorbed he is but also in the particular production we saw he, it's his worldview that's important his subjectivity him who is at the center of things and nothing happens really without his um his authority and by authority his perspective um yeah uh, Haman was also concerned that philosophers were too interested in rationality. And so Haman, just like Kant, starts emphasizing um, the aesthetic experience as being important. And so for Kant, Kant is a, a system builder. And what that means, he wants to combine different branches of philosophy together. And those for Kant would include um, metaphysics, um, ontology. So metaphysics is... Uh, stuff that is beyond us, um, beyond the physical world. So if you wanted to explain um, the afterlife or something, that would be a metaphysical concern. Um, he's interested in ontology, which is just the stuff of the world, epistemology, which is how we know things. Epistemi is the, the Greek word for knowledge or one of the Greek words for knowledge. Um, and he's also concerned with ethics. And part of art for Kant is, is kind of ethical concern and ethical elevation. 
Um, and Haman too in his writing is also interested in aesthetic experience and aesthetics, the study of art, as being a principal aspect of philosophy and as important as these, these other fields. Um, good. So we also, you know, combine that with other thinkers like Joseph de Mastre, who um, his 1797 book, Considerations on France, looks at the French Revolution as divine punishment for the Enlightenment. So you have, um, uh, Mestre, I believe, was French, but you have also kind of an intellectual uh, uh, group who are not only writing about philosophy in this term, but writing about how the Enlightenment, this thing that actually had a name, it's not something we're imposing on it, but in its own day, it referred to itself as as the Enlightenment. Uh, and now people are beginning to say, no, this is bad. This is divine punishment. Um, for Dimestre, he sees the revolution as unleashing the forces of nature. And so here's another tenant that, that streams through Romanticism, a little less in The Prince of Hamburg, but it's this idea that, um, that is kind of inherited through Rousseau that there's this natural world and you're going to unleash nature. Um, and nature is not something you can control or quantify or categorize as Enlightenment thinkers would attempt to. But nature is, you know, this great, unyielding, undescribable force. And it is only emotion, it is only passion that leads us to an understanding of nature. We can't, you know, box it in with our science, right? That's not the way to do it. Um, and, and the French Revolution was seen as the manifestation of this. So other Stormendrang writers, the most famous is probably Goethe. Goethe, who we talked about his, his play Faust, we almost did it. Uh, Johann Gottfried Herder is another famous playwright there. Um, these writers, Herder, Goethe, uh, Lenz, Stilling, Salzmann, these are all, um, all German language writers and philosophers, they were really interested in how the environment affects the individual. And you could see, again, the kind of Kantian stuff, right? The centering of the individual. You could see the, uh, the, the Dimastre stuff about how nature is not to be known, you know, that it's, it's to be unleashed. And so we're thinking about the individual and nature environment being unleashed and affecting people. Also the, the, the social environment as well as how it affects individual people. And so they start writing plays about this. Um, the, the theater company they worked for, which I believe was in Berlin, was the Sieler Theater Company. Um, this is where the play Sturm und Drang was, was staged in 1777. And they began to stage plays there. Um, and a lot of these plays are really over the top really, um, really larger than life. Uh, one example could be in, in uh, and a lot of them couldn't be staged. They end up becoming um, closet dramas because uh, there's so many kind of bizarre and fantastical elements that you can't really put them on stage. I'll give you an example from, from Goethe's Faust, Faust part one. Um, Mephisto, who's the devil who comes to tempt Faust and, you know, so Faust sells his soul. Uh, Mephisto first enters the stage as a poodle and he walks on stage as a poodle and then the poodle gets really big and explodes and becomes Mephisto. I don't know how Goethe expected people in the 18th or 19th century to stage exploding poodle, um, but that 
that's an example of the the type of weirdnesses that are going on with these plays. So the Prince of Homburg is is fairly tame by comparison. Um, another influence, and this time a little little less of an influence on this particular play, possibly, is something called Weimar Classicism. Um, Weimar is a city in Germany, and some of these playwrights, like like Goethe and Schilling, and I think Herder as well, uh, actually traveled down to Rome. And they thought briefly, stopped writing and looked into um, the classical world, the Roman world, for inspiration. And they came up with three major tenets that would define Weimar classicism. Gehalt, which in German just means felt thought, um, which is that there should be a feeling of aliveness in the work of art. Um, gestalt, which is the, the aesthetic form, and uh, stoff, which is a direction away from content and towards form. So the, the artistic form should be the, the center of our attention. Um, this had some effect on, on the Romantic era, but it was a, it was a movement that a, a few major German artists engaged in. Uh, last thing I'm going to talk about is Romantic nationalism. So what thinkers began to say was that the state doesn't derive its legitimacy um, by virtue of tradition, or it doesn't derive its legitimacy by virtue of the king saying, I'm king, because uh, if you look at the genealogy, clearly I'm the eldest son of the eldest son um, who didn't die, so therefore I'm king, or something like that, right? It isn't it isn't a contest between elites. The state, for these people, exists because of the people. It is an organic unit of people, or an organic unit of a unity of people. Um, of course, people saying this are very often German. So since Germany isn't actually a state, I mean, we have Prussia, but the rest of Germany is a hodgepodge of states. Um, the idea of what that what the nation looked like was linguistic so a people are people who speak the same language right a people are people who kind of therefore share in customs and whatnot and they do because they they can communicate with each other um and so a lot of uh, concerns about the philosophy of language start emerging here in germany just what does language do what is language meant to do we start to see the birth of linguistics um, the Grimm brothers, if pe you know, people know the Grimm fairy tales, but uh, I think it's Wilhelm and Jakob Grimm were the, the name of the Grimm brothers, who are famous for their linguistic work. That's really what they're most important. Uh, that's why they're the most. That's why they're important. And they've kind of discovered. I think it was Wilhelm Grimm who discovered how letters change sounds over time. So why, like, pod or padre becomes father. He was able to actually show how people in the way they speak over time, padre naturally becomes father and, and other sh sound shifts as well. Um, he didn't understand vowel shifts, but he understood consonant shifts. But anyway, it's, it's a very, like the birth of linguistics comes at this time. And, you know, one of the reasons is is that we begin to see the justification for a nation as both bottom-up and linguistic in nature. Um, Hegel comes along this time. He says the age speaks through a people. So, you know, it's not the age of Constantinople anymore, but it's the age of or whomever, whatever 
big dude you, you like uh, but it's the age that speaks through through um the the lowest of the low you know everyone in the country um you know this began to see prussia saw itself as spiritually renewed by these ideas and uh, the term that was passed around was a uh, vokstrom vokstom no r excuse me vokstom which means folkhood and it's a term that basically means what is the essential nature of a people and so you could talk about people as having an essentialness or a thingness uh, and and vokstom is the term for that um yeah and so that is that's sort of the philosophical underpinnings in which the the prince of homburg arrives um and so you know in this this part of the class this kind of three plays uh Buchner, um, Nathan the Wise, and the Prince of Homburg, um, there is this kind of transition over time um, from Enlightenment to Romanticism, um, from social problems to concerns with the individual. Uh, and I think Buchner sort of stands between the two. I think Buchner is so weird, Wojciech is so weird that it's he's sometimes hard to place in in a narrative of of the history of drama um but anyway i'll stop there and i will ask some ask the big question um no i won't ask the big question we'll start with small questions plot questions so what happens in the first scene in this play Um, the prince basically comes back from whatever uh, battle he had been fighting against. I, oh, I forget who. Sweden? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think Sweden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically goes to like rest and then he kind of like sleepwalks, I guess. Mm-hmm. And there's the whole scene like with the laurel crown or the mm-hmm. laurel wreath and the courtiers being real weird about him sleepwalking yeah yeah there's a uh a, 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 yeah an odd reaction to that so he's leading the cavalry and they're it's around midnight they're in movement and it's it's brandenburg against sweden um which does anybody remember when that was or roughly when this play is set So it's it's set in the 1670s. So this play is um, looking to the past, also, right? Looking to the past and establishing a uh, a kind of a national identity that has a history, right? So we're looking we're looking to the past. We're looking to the far away, which is one of the kind of the paradoxes of this time period. There's the the organic nation, but there's also this kind of romantic notion of of long ago and far away. You know, um, Disney movies are are deeply inspired by this era. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the even the people here kind of look like um, first and second generation Disney princes. But anyway, um, yeah. So that's that's where the play's going. That's what's going on. And um, what is what does it appear that the Prince of Homburg is dreaming about? Um, 
know specifically like what he was dreaming about, but I know when all like the court members come to kind of see what's going on, he like says that his mother and father is there, and um, the princess. He's like, oh, like my love, mm-hmm. and there's a whole like scandalous kind of undertone there. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's he's playing with a laurel wreath, right, at the beginning, and so. We don't know exactly what he's dreaming about, but he is looking at the reef of victory on the eve of a battle. So, we, you know, two and two. Right. Um, but they the elector. So the big man in charge and his court, they come down and they start messing with him and they take the wreath away. The, the elector puts one of his his chains, his decorative chains around around the reef. And he gives it to his daughter and um, the Prince of Hamburg in a a stupor kind of runs at the daughter and it's, oh, you have my wreath, my love. Um, The 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 elector's wife, he refers to as his mother. Um, And yeah, and I think the the elector towards the end says uh, what you see is a passing abstraction of the mind. Indeed, I thought we were living in a fairy tale. Um, the prince responds, and so the this opening scene is is yeah, it's um, a little fantastical. It's it's privileging the subjective mind over the objective reality, um, but we have we have here this kind of um, dreamy, romantic prince, uh, and you know he's pursuing. You know, the um, he ends up pursuing the daughter, but what gets left behind? That becomes a problem later on. Was it her glove? Mm-hmm. Yep, it's her glove. Her glove gets left behind, and he doesn't. When he wakes up, he doesn't quite remember um, whose glove it is. And so he just sort of puts it on his uniform. Good. So that's how we, that's how this play opens. Um, so what then happens after this? advisors basically comes to wake him up and be like hey the cavalry is kind of moving on without you here Mm -hmm. like what are you doing dude (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and the prince I forget the exact wording but he says something about how he was like enchanted by the moonlight or something Mm -hmm. and that just really stuck out to me because it it just seems so fantastical (laughs) like you were saying Mm -hmm. Um, especially considering that they're talking about war mm-hmm. he's like oh you know i was bewitched by the moonlight i think it was yeah um so yeah so then he basically goes to join the cavalry mm-hmm. and proceed yeah all that good stuff yeah so he goes out to join the cavalry and um yeah so he goes out to join the cavalry and then he has this kind of war meeting right and this is a, a meeting where the elector via um uh, Husenholren, I think is his name, the guy who gives out the orders, um, who is part of that that very famous Holy Roman uh, family. Um, 
if I'm saying it right even. Uh, but he's giving out the orders, and what ends up being kind of the problem in that scene? The Prince of Hamburg has a big problem when having to receive military orders. He's so caught up on, like, where the heck did this glove come from? <laughs> yeah. And then the daughter of the main guy mm-hmm. is like, oh, like, I'm missing a glove. Mm-hmm. And he kind of puts two and two together, and then he's panicking about, like, oh, no, like, why do I have her glove? Should I give it to her? Like, what does this mean? <laughs> While they're also trying to give him military orders. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just, like, he's constantly kind of going back and forth between, like, the military aspect and this lady. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think it's the niece of the Grand Elector. So I think I I misspoke. I think it's the niece and the niece's mother. So either his sister or sister-in-law. Um I don't I don't think they that woman is the daughter. But any, anyway, she's she's like the heir. Whoever she is. Yeah. She's like the the important woman and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mhm. Exactly. And so it's kind of like, where did I get this glove? And then he hears that I'm missing my glove. And she's like, well, your glove is right there. No, the, the left glove. Uh, yeah. um, just really spell it out for you in case you missed it. And so we have here at the, at the top of this play in the second scene, um, we get this guy who can't concentrate on military orders because he's so taken with this I, this thing of beauty, right, that he wants, um, you know, that that is enchanting him. So what do you guys, I'll ask him the last question now, uh, what do you guys think of that? Any comments on how this is set up or on anything else? I mean, when you put it like that, it definitely makes, like, shows that whole, like, romanticism side of the play where there's, mm-hmm. like, this, you know, this absolutely magnificent magnificently beautiful thing that is so distracting he can't even do what like his one job in society is and that's you know be a military man and follow mm-hmm. orders mm-hmm. and in the end it even kind of gets him off like you know when the guy comes forward and says like it's my fault I distracted him with all of this stuff that's why he wasn't following yeah, his yeah. orders like Mm-hmm. That even it's almost like what gets him out of trouble too. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, and that's a really good point. And I know we're a little over, um, but I I will I just connect that because I think that's really smart, Kimberly. Um, this idea that his way of being in the world, his kind of romantic way of being, helps him out. People like that. In in Faust, in Goethe's Faust, the, the plot of it is that Faust sells his soul to the devil, um, and you know for a, a until faust in the marlowe play it's for a period of years it's like 25 years but in the goethe play it's until faust finds a moment of happiness and what you like or absolute contentment until he doesn't want anything anymore um and so uh what happens is faust ends up instead of just making himself wealthy he makes the world better you know, he improves the world and he finds this moment of contentment and the devil's going to steal his soul. But then God comes down and saves Faust because Faust in this had this grand romantic vision of saving the world. And that grand romantic vision this being a romantic figure is what saves him. And there's a little bit of that going on here. And I think, Kimberly, you were picking that up. 
<laughs> yeah. So I we are over time. So I will stay on this this uh, thing here, this Google Meet here. Um, if anybody has any questions or needs to talk to me, and if not, you are free to go. Thank you. See you Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Julia, do you? Okay. Oh, here it is. I have a quick question about the project. Oh, sure. What? Which play are you doing again? Are you doing Voitsec? Right. You're you're doing Voitsec, right? We talked about this. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Just um, yeah. You could do you could do more than one scene. That's fine. Do you want to keep them back to back? Might make it a little easier. Or do you have something else in mind? Okay. That's fine. Sounds good. Absolutely. Thank you.